back in Jeremiah chapter 24, a rare short chapter in the book of Jeremiah. Not a ton of these, 10 verses long uh, today, and we're looking at a, um, a vision, I suppose, of uh, two baskets of figs, fig Newtons and fig Nellies, they're the off-brand. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, does anybody like Fig Newtons, by the way? Man, what's wrong with you people? All right. Enough people like them, it must be me, not you. That's the problem. <laughs> we don't have a lot of ameners in the church, but uh, when we talk about Fig Newtons, that'll bring out the shouting. One way or the other, the anti or the four, whichever one. Um, Jeremiah 24, started verse number one. The Lord showed me, and behold... Two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord. After that, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths and Jerusalem and had, from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil. They cannot be eaten, they are so evil. We're going to look at the meaning of this through the rest of the chapter this afternoon. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for letting us come back this afternoon. Thank you for your word and what we can learn from it. Thank you for illustrations that are given to us that are easy to be seen. And God, I just pray that you'd help us this afternoon as we look at this chapter. Even though it won't take us long, Lord, I pray that we would learn from it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see here these two figs, the very good and the very naughty, as the Bible says. Some that were as good as like the first ripe and others that were so bad they could not be eaten. Um, I don't know if you've ever had food that you started to, you bit into it and you're like, no, I just can't do it. Uh, you know, I grew up being taught manners. And you ate what was in front of you. You would go to a guest's house and they cooked for you. No matter what it tastes like, you eat it. And, uh, and I remember we had someone made us dinner one time. It was Wednesday night before church. They came over to the house and brought it with them And uh, when I was a kid. And uh, I don't know what was wrong with it, but something. It was a chicken pot pie, so you would think it can't be that bad. Something was off. And it was not good whatsoever. And uh, we got in the car to go to church, and the lady who brought it with us, she was an older lady, she rode with us to church that night, and um, we went to church, and then after church, came back, took her home, and my mom, she said, you guys were so good. I mean, we're talking, we were probably, maybe even junior high, maybe not quite there yet, uh, probably not, because I don't know why mom would have commended us if we were in junior high, but nonetheless, I was probably 9 or 10, my sister would have been 10 or 11. And she said, that was so bad, and you guys didn't say a word, thank you so much for not saying anything. Because you know that fear that the kids will say something, and then you have upset the person who made it for you. And you just had something, you go, it's just not, I just can't do it. I just, I can't get it down. I just, it's impossible for me to, to eat this stuff. Uh, the kids tried sardines the other day, and one of them liked them, and the other one didn't. Um, I didn't try sardines. I gave it to the cat. But nonetheless, there are things... <laughs> That you just, you can't, you can't eat. It's just not good. You understand, you take a bite and you go, there's something off. Maybe the, the meat's rotten or the whatever, all right? Uh, how many of you have ever heard of persimmons? 
All right, how many of you ever had a non-ripe persimmon? All right, so I did it one time, and then after that, I did the joke to other people. Um, so a persimmon, if it's ripe, it's a fruit. If it's ripe, it's very good. If it's not ripe, it's very bad. And you bite into it, and immediately your mouth goes cotton mouth. Uh, it, is, it is really bad. And so we used to, to, on the trail rides at camp, we would ride by a persimmon tree. And so we would pick a persimmon and hand it to one of the new guys or one of the campers and let them give it a go and, uh, and get their, their facial expressions for it. But if it's not ripe, it is so bad. And that's the, the vision that's here. This is the illustration that's given to us. The figs that were good, boy, were they good. They tasted great. They were as the first ripe. They were perfect, so to say, at the perfect time to have. But the other figs, they were so bad, they could not be eaten. So he explains it to us in verse number 4. And the word of the Lord came again unto me, or came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. I have a couple words marked in this verse. First of all, I, uh, will I acknowledge them, uh, and that the ones that were carried away captive. And he says, those are the ones I sent away for a purpose for their good, right? It's to bring them back to me. It's a, it's a correcting time. Um, you know, <laughs> whether you believed it or not as a kid, when your parents discipline you, you, they do it for your good. They say, I love you. This is why I'm doing this. It is, it's because I love you that I'm disciplining you. And God's the same way. Whom he loveth, he chasteneth. And so he's, he's, he's sending them off into captivity, but it's for their good, not for their evil. And a lot of times we forget that. We forget that even, even the discipline we go through, it isn't because God is mad at us, it's because God loves us that he does this for us, that he disciplines us and chastens us to correct us so that we can get back to living the way that he intends for us to. Verse 6, he says, For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again into this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. So the first part here is the good figs. Who are the good figs? The good figs are the people who went into captivity. And as they went into captivity, God said, I did this for a purpose, for their good, and I'm going to bring them back. And when I bring them back, I'm going to build them up, not tear them down. I'm going to plant them and not pluck them. They're going to bless. They're going to prosper. There's going to be a revival, not just spiritually, but also nationally, but there will also be a spiritual revival because he says in verse number 7, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people. I will be their God. We've seen that throughout Jeremiah. We see it in other places as well. They're my people. I am their God. And it says they will return unto me with their whole heart. What happens in the book of Judges and what has happened to this point in Jeremiah? The people have sinned, and when they tried to get right, it wasn't a full commitment to get right. It was a, we don't like what's happening to us. God, take away the bad stuff. It wasn't a change our heart. It wasn't we're returning, we're repenting from the idolatry and coming back to you, God. It was, and we see it all throughout Judges too, right? They get into captivity, they get into trouble, and, and it's, God, please save us. We'll do whatever it takes. And God, uh, God accepts that repentance. 
And, and they come back to God for so many years, and then they eventually turn back away. And he says here in Jeremiah 24, at the end of the verse, they will return unto me with their whole heart. When they come out of captivity, when I bring them back out of captivity here, when they return back to this place in which I'm going to build them, which I'm going to plant them, he said they're going to be committed with their whole heart. They're going to come back to me, not just to a city or a place on the map. They are truly going to return to me, and it will be as I intend for it to be. They shall be my people, and I shall be their God. That's the good figs, and I think we can understand why that's good, right? We can understand why, that's, why, why that, that they're right. Uh, we, we see that, that terminology used in Scripture. We see it used as well with the, uh, uh, the idea of ready for harvest. It is when the time is right, when they have done what they need to do, when they have gone through what I have put them through, and in my timing, they will be ready then to reap, so to say. They'll be ready to be reaped. And so God says these good figs, this is what's ahead for them. Yes, they're going to go to captivity, but it's for a purpose. It's for their good. They're going to return, and I'm going to build and not destroy. I'm going to plant and not pluck. And they're going to return with me, to me with their whole heart. And again, the terms are not there on accident. Their whole heart, the full, uh, complete surrender and commitment to God. We are following you. We are not following idols anymore. You know, I always think, and, and I, I know... I know that I would be no different, but yet I still think if you knew that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace and didn't die, and they came out and didn't even smell like fire, if you knew about that, wouldn't you go, hey, that's, that's our God, and immediately turn then? If you knew Daniel was thrown in a lion's den and didn't get eaten by lions, and even the king said it's because of Daniel's God, wouldn't you think that you'd be like, hey, that's my God? Yet still, we see just it takes time for, for us to grasp, yes, it's my God. Yes, he did that for them. He, he can do that for me. And, and we just, we never, we fail so often to be fully committed to God, to give God our whole heart. Instead, we give him most of our heart and kind of hold back on some other things, usually because we know God doesn't want it in our lives, but we don't want to let go of it. And so we give God as much as we possibly want to, but not everything that we should. But these figs, that's exactly what was going to happen. Now, the last three, four verses here, uh, three verses, is about the bad figs. It says in verse 8, And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Surely thus saith the Lord, So will I give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain, that's an important word, in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth, for their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, in all places whither I shall drive them, and I will send the sword, the, the, sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them, uh, till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. So there was a group of people that... Uh, did not go into, uh, would not go into captivity, they ran, they dispersed, they tried to escape what God was, was giving for their good. And when they did that, they went to Egypt. And we read, anytime you read in the Bible about Egypt, you're going to see wickedness. Every single time. They ran to Egypt, they dispersed, they ran away, they tried to avoid the discipline and the punishment that was coming. And guess what? You, you just can't do that. <laughs> you can't outrun God. Uh, we see the story of Jonah 
Um, he didn't do it. You can't either. And these people did not either. And so he says, these folks that don't get taken away, he says, I'm going to deliver them, verse 9, and remove them into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt. So that there was a, for their good, right, to those that were, were, were receiving the discipline and those that were avoiding or trying to avoid it, now where God sends them is going to be for their hurt. It says to be a reproach and a proverb. People are going to learn <laughs> about this. This is the way I interpret a proverb. Uh, they're going to learn, hey, don't be like these people. <laughs> Down the road, you're going to hear the stories of these people. Don't do this, right? We look at proverbs and wisdom and, and all the things that, that we see, you hear of, oh, this Chinese proverb, but you look at the scriptural proverbs and you see different teachings, wisdom that's imparted, and he said they're going to be negative for the reproach, a taunt and a curse, and all places whither I shall drive them. He says, that, he says I'm going to send sword, famine, and pestilence. None of that sounds positive. And uh, he said, I'm going, to, I'm going to clear them out. They're not going to be a part of that good rebuilding, that good uh, new refreshed planting that I'm going to do. They're not going to be a part of that. As a matter of fact, they're going to, they're going to be gone. I'm going to take them off the, 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 the earth completely. And as he says there at the end of the, the chapter, until uh, they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. To me, uh, this is one thing that I got out of that verse. As he says, it's the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. I intended for them to use, and listen, I'm not saying God didn't know what was going to happen. But he said the intention was for these people to live in this land that I've brought them to and worship and serve me, and they've chose not to do that. So what could have been versus what is. Didn't surprise God what they did. But what he's saying is, I gave them every opportunity. Right? I didn't, I didn't put them in a, in, at the beginning of it all. I didn't put them in a bad situation. They had a a perfect situation. They were told, this is your land. Go and bless and prosper and, and grow and build and, and, and live out your life and train your children and your grandchildren to follow me. And instead, they followed idols. Instead, they turned. They didn't obey God from the beginning of going into the land and getting rid of everybody else. That led to uh, intermarrying with other religions, which ended, ended up with whole generations being idolaters instead of God followers. And the result of that now comes down to these, these two groups of people, the good figs and the bad figs. They were both guilty of the, the sin, but one of them, one group of them, uh, took the punishment that God was sending and the others tried to run from it. And God says, I can't bless that. I can't honor that. I cannot approve that. And so here we are with two groups of people, the basket of good figs, uh, very good figs in the basket of very naughty figs, uh, so bad they could not be eaten. And, uh, you know, you look through life, and sometimes when God comes and he tries to correct us, our first reaction is uh, to reject the correction that God is sending. And maybe we think, well, no, God, you don't understand. I had to do this. No, God, you don't understand. That's not fair. My kids say that all the time. That's not fair. The first response is, life's not fair. Uh, but uh, other times, it's, no, actually, it is fair. You did this, so this is what you get. He did this, so he gets rewarded. You didn't. Why would you get rewarded? Or you did this, you weren't supposed to. You're getting punished. 
He didn't do this, so he's not going to get punished. It's as fair as it can possibly be. Uh, I saw this, this statement, and I did not write down who it was. I wrote it down in my Bible years ago. It says, trials are to some a rod of for correction that lead to good, and to others a sword that leads to destruction. Sometimes the trials that we go through, oftentimes, uh, the trials that we go to are, are there to stretch us, to grow us, to correct us, and, and get us back to where we're supposed to be. And other times, ultimately, it leads to just destruction for us because we don't accept the correction that is being sent to us. So I encourage you, as much as we hate being disciplined, if God begins to discipline you, just submit to it. Ask God for the restoration that he promises he can bring. And allow God to correct you as opposed to balking at the correction and saying, no, no, you don't understand. You understand. Remember, God does. He understands far more than we do. So when the correction comes, take it. Get correct. As opposed to, to uh, uh, rejecting it, which will ultimately lead to destruction. And that's nothing that we want, I guarantee it. Lord, thank you for your word. And again, I thank you for the illustrations, the, the real-life happenings of people whom you've proven to love, who you've proven to take care of, who you've proven uh, uh, to, to make promises to and hold those promises. And yet, Lord, we watch as they reject you. God, we see who you are, what you're not only capable of, but, Lord, what you've told us will happen. And, God, I pray that we can learn from these mistakes of other people so that we don't have to go through them ourselves. And Lord, when you correct us, may we understand you're doing it because you love us and it's for our good. May we accept the correction that you're giving us, that, God, we can be exactly what you desire for us to be. Help us this week uh, to follow you, to love you, to be bold for you. And, God, we'll give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've had a good day today. Uh, thank you all for being here. We'll be back Wednesday night at 7. If you can come, we sure would love for you to be a part of it. And uh, until next time, we will see you all. Lord bless you. Let's be dismissed. All right. Uh, we'll be in Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25 this afternoon. Thank you for coming back, for being here. Good crowd this afternoon. Jeremiah 25. Uh, we'll pray here in just a second. And we're looking now, uh, look at verse 1. The Bible says, The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So you see where we're headed, uh, uh, where, where we're getting to when you talk, start talking about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's reign as well. Today's chapter, Jeremiah 25, is not an encouraging chapter. Uh, as a matter of fact, it is a very dark chapter. Uh, and uh, we'll look at it here in just a moment. But I want to remind us before we go into the chapter that darkness in this sense, the judgment that is coming, doesn't have to come if the sin isn't there. 
And as we look through what is ahead for uh, uh, Israel here and for the people, uh, just remember that. None of this has to come to, to fruition. Uh, the, the Babylonian captivity, the, uh, all that, that goes into that desolation that happens didn't have to happen if the people simply would have repented and done what they're supposed to do, done right. And, uh, but they didn't, and we'll look at that this afternoon. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminders that we receive from it, for the, the growth and the learning and the challenges that we receive from it, as well as the encouraging verses and the things that we can take comfort in. Lord, I pray that today as we look at this chapter, that you would teach us, that you would grow us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see now we are coming up on the Babylonian captivity. And a couple of things I want to point out. We're not going to read necessarily every verse. Um, but in verse number two now, Jeremiah comes to speak to the people of Judah and, uh, and all of Jerusalem, it says. Verse number three, it says, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, and even unto this day that is uh, that is the three and twentieth year, that's twenty-three for people like me, the word of the Lord hath come unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, look at this last line, but ye have not hearkened. This is a choice that is being made by the people, and we're going to look at this happening three or four times here in this chapter. But he says, for 23 years now, I have been preaching, I've been prophesying, I've been proclaiming the message of God. And in doing so, as I've shared with you the message of God, which is destruction's coming, captivity's coming, uh, punishment's coming, if you do not repent, he says there in verse number 3, you have not hearkened. Look in verse number 4. And the Lord has sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not hearkened, nor inclined your ear to hear. So now he says, not only me, but other servants and prophets um, that, that God has sent, they've preached to you, and still you've not hearkened, you've not inclined your ear. Uh, flip over to verse number 7. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord. And that's an important, by the way, three words, saith the Lord. It's not Jeremiah saying, you haven't listened to me. You haven't listened to me. You haven't listened to me. It's not about Jeremiah. It's about the message in which he's giving and who sent that message to him. And so it's a reminder that it's not that they haven't hearkened to Jeremiah. It's that they haven't hearkened to God. And it says in verse 7 that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt, reminding them that all that is coming is on, on yourself. It's not on God. It's not that you could sit there and blame God. Well, he did wrong to me. He didn't mean to me. He hurt me. Whatever. He says, no, it's, it's because of your own hands that the hurt is coming. Uh, look in verse, back in verse 5. Uh, it says, they said, turn ye again, this is the prophets, turn ye again now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your doings and dwell in the land that the Lord hath given, you unto, uh, given unto you and to your fathers forever and ever. And go after no other gods to serve them and to worship them and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands and I will do you no hurt. That's God speaking. He's saying, turn away, right? We've talked about this. Repent. Turn away from your wicked ways, from your evil doings, from your sin, from your selfishness, from your idolatry. Don't go to other gods. Because if you do, it will provoke me to anger. 
uh, with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt if you repent, if you turn. <clears throat> then, like we read already in verse 7, they didn't hearken, and so he says you, uh, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hand to your own hurt. I will do you no hurt, and verse number 6, if you repent, verse number 7, now your hands has caused your own hurt. So three different times, verse 7, verse 4, and verse uh, 3, it mentions the fact that you did not hearken. You may have had a bad boss before that said something, uh, or said, why didn't you do this? And you say, because you didn't tell me to do it. I didn't know I was supposed to do it. Well, you should have known, and, well, but you didn't tell me to do it. I didn't know. I didn't know any better. God's not that way. God doesn't look at you and go, you should have known better. He says, no, I've told you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been very clear. You're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to act this way. And I've told you, if you don't repent, this is coming. Um, I love my dad, but uh, we, were, we were one time, when we worked together, I say worked together, I worked for him. Uh, but uh, when we were working at the same place, um, he got upset at someone because they didn't do something. And I did, I asked him, I said, well, did you tell him to do it? He said, no, he should have just known. I said, well, you know, maybe... But if you didn't tell them, how can you expect them to do it? Like, how can you be mad at them for not doing it at the very least? You can be frustrated or annoyed or whatever, but how can you actually be mad at them? Because you didn't tell them to do it. I'm not sure if he agreed with me or not, but I was right. But uh, the fact is, is that God doesn't do that to us. God doesn't just expect us to know. He says, I've given you my words that show you and tell you you should know because I've given it to you. And if you refuse it, if you don't listen to it, if you don't incline your ear, that's on you, not on me. I have given you the message. And that's exactly what's going on here. And they have chosen to not hearken to God. So then in verse 8, that, that big word to start the verse, therefore, the reason why this is happening because of, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Listen, first of all, he's saying that sin must be punished. Behold, I will sin. I'll take all the families from the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. If you were to ask someone, name some of God's servants, Nebuchadnezzar's not going to be the one to come to mind more than likely. But even unknowingly, Nebuchadnezzar was serving the Lord. By the way, every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess. You see, in some way, shape, or form, you're going to serve the Lord. The question is, is do you want to be a willing participant? Um, I always go back to Samson when I talk about that. Samson, was he a servant of the Lord? Yes, he was. Uh, God used him to deliver his people. But do you think Samson enjoyed his service of the Lord. I would argue very loudly, no, he did not. And because Samson was all about himself, did God use him as a servant? You bet he did. But his greatest accomplishment for God was in his death. And, uh, and, and on the earth, Samson enjoyed some of the uh, gifts that God gave him, but he never enjoyed the true blessings of God because of his constant disobedience. 
Uh, anyways, Nebuchadnezzar, that was all, that was free, by the way. All right, now the part that you paid for. Um, it says here that Nebuchadnezzar, my, uh, uh, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about, and he will utterly destroy them and make them an at- uh, astonishment and a hissing or a disgrace and perpetual desolation. That doesn't sound good, right? I'm smart enough to know that at the very least. Verse number 10, he says, Moreover, I will take from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones and the light of the candles. Saying for in, in, in layman's terms, life as you know it is about to change. It says in verse 12, it shall come to pass with 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon. So he's going to use Nebuchadnezzar to punish his people. But after 70 years, he says, I will punish Nebuchadnezzar, well, not Nebuchadnezzar, but the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it a perpetual desolation. So listen, what is, what is Babylon's iniquity? They went against God's people. Why do they go against God's people? Because God said, go against my people. But God still says it's a sin. Um, uh, You've heard the phrase, united we stand, divided we fall. You mess with one, you mess with us all. Um, In in our case as Christians, you mess with the one. Right? You mess with all of us. And not that we're there to back up God, it's that God's there to back up us. And God's there to take, take care of all the problems that are going on. Nonetheless, he says, the, the punishment is coming to my people, but the people that I use to punish my people, they're going to be punished. You got all that in the notes? And I will bring upon, verse 13, that land all of my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah hath prophesied against all the nations, for many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of them also. Nebuchadnezzar was a servant of the Lord, right? My servant. But he's serving himself in all of this as well. I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. I've already said this a million times. God will use wicked people at times to do things his bidding, to do God's bidding, to, uh, whether it be a disciplinary a discipline of his people, whether it be whatever it is. God's will, he'll accomplish it however he desires to do so. And as he does that, again, he says they're going to get what's coming to them according to their deeds, according to their works. He uses them, God does, for his purpose, and then he destroys them, wipes them off. They're gone. Verse number 15 says, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it for lack of a better term, have them drink the poison. Not like a cult, by the way. As soon as I said that, I thought, oh, that sounds cultish. Um, Not like that. But uh, nonetheless, it says in verse 16, they shall drink and be uh, be moved and be mad because of the sword, and I will send among them. He goes on in verse 18, on down through verse number 26, to list kingdoms and kings and people and places in which all this is going to, to go on. Jump down to verse 27. Therefore, and you can read that, by the way. I just, uh, there's a lot of, I mess up a lot of words, and so you can read it for yourself. Verse 27. Therefore thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink ye and be drunken, and spew and fall, 
and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. This has the perfect picture of being influenced, not being in your normal mind, uh, being influenced to do things that you maybe wouldn't do otherwise. If you think of the idea of being drunken, um, the inability to make normal decisions, right decisions, the, uh, to, to be able to control yourself because you're controlled by the wine or by the alcohol or whatever it may be. He says, go ahead and, and be drunk and spew, fall, rise no more. The sword is, is coming. I'm sending it to you. In verse 28, it's, it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup at thine hand to drink, then shalt thou say unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, ye shall certainly drink. You're not getting out of this. For lo, I begin to bring evil on the city which is called by my name, and should ye be utterly unpunished, ye shall not be unpunished. For I will call for a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, saith the Lord of hosts. They, they can't avoid it. They just they can't. They can't get out of it. It's what God has designed. It's what God has planned. It's what God is going to make happen. Look at verse 30. Therefore prophesy thou against them all these words, and say unto them, The Lord shall roar from on high, and utter his voice from his holy habitation. Ye shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout as uh, they that tread uh, the, the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise shall come, an alarm will be sounded, even to the ends of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with the nations. He will plead with all flesh. He will give them that are wicked to the sword, saith the Lord. Listen, God's making the war. Babylon doesn't decide, hey, we should go to war. Uh, against these people. No, God decided it. <laughs> and Babylon was just doing the bidding of God. And Babylon's going to suffer the consequence for it as well. It says the Lord hath a controversy. This is a just cause by God to bring Babylon in to punish his people. It's a just reason. And it'll be a just cause when he delivers them as well. Verse 32, uh, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, evil shall go forth from nation to nation, a great whirlwind shall be raised. Uh, many believe this to be the Chaldean army that comes through. Uh, verse 33, And the slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth, even unto the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered, nor buried. They shall be dung upon the ground. Listen, it's picturesque, I know. But the idea of the desolation, the idea that no one is going to care, you're just going to be scared. You're not getting a burial. Listen, burials, funerals are respectful, right? You pay reverence, or not maybe not reverence is the right word, but you pay memory to, and, uh, and, and you talk about one's life and what was accomplished in the life, and you, it is a time of remembrance, of, of good remembrance. It is respectful to do so. He says you're not getting the respect of a funeral. You're just going to be scattered around like wild animal dung just out on the ground. It's just what it is. Um, verse 34, Howl ye shepherds and cry, wallow yourselves in the ashes, ye principal of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are accomplished, and ye shall, like a, uh, ye shall fall like a pleasant vessel. The idea of the crashing there. The idea that, that, that at one time, you know, you think of shepherds, we, when we think of shepherds, we oftentimes go back to David, keeping his sheep safe, 
And the bear came and the lion came and God allowed him to defeat the bear and the lion. Shepherds, I don't know about you, when I think of a shepherd, I don't think of strength. But shepherds were strong. Shepherds were brave. Shepherds were courageous. And they did everything they could to protect their flock because, well, it's, that was their source of food, right? They had the trade or sell or whatever it may be. And they were to guard that flock. And here is the sense of, of fear, the sense of uh, defeat, so to say, cry and howl um, because of what is coming. Verse 35, and the shepherds shall have no way to flee, nor the principle of the flock to escape. You, you can't escape. You cannot get out of it. You can't outrun it. Verse 36, the voice of the cry of the shepherds and the howling of the principle of the flock shall be heard, for the Lord hath spoiled their pasture. It's no longer good. Verse 37, and the peaceable habitations are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He hath forsaken his covert as the lion, and for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. What are two things that make God angry? I'm going to tell them to you. There's more than two, obviously. Two things that make God angry. Number one is his people rejecting him. That's going to make God angry. If his people, Christians, his children, reject him, God's not going to take that lightly. The second thing is if someone does wrong to his people. See, God gets angry. I say angry. It's righteously anger. It's just anger at us when we sin, when we reject God, when we do things that are wrong in his eyes. God doesn't just, as a parent, sometimes your kids, it's kind of levels, right? Maybe even on just the day that you're having of how angry you get at your kids uh, when they do something wrong. And uh, you sit there and you go, well, you know, he shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't have done that, but, you know, it'll be okay. You know, hey, don't do that again. And then there's other times when you're like, pack your bags. You're out of here, pal. And that, is not, that is not acceptable in this house. Um, I remember one time, uh, I came home 30 minutes late, I think. Now listen, I lived on a, on a camp property. We had 20, 30 houses there. Everybody worked at the camp, right? So when you're on the property, you're not getting much more safe than what you can be there. And so mom says be home at 5, and I come home at 5.30. It's not like I'm out, you know, carousing the town. Uh, I'm, you know, playing basketball down at camp. I came back home, and uh, Mom asked me, why are you late? And I don't remember now what I said, but whatever I said wasn't true. And I don't remember how in the world they found out. I don't know what I gave up. I don't remember all of that. But I remember it, it being found out that why I was late was not the reason why I was late. And, and really, had I just told the truth, it probably would have been over. But I remember I was probably 9, 10 years old. And I remember getting a spanking, and my dad said, you do not lie to your mother. And I'm sitting there and myself thinking, I have lied a million times to mom and haven't gotten spanked. And, uh, but for whatever reason, that time I did. You know, it's one of those things where it's, it, it, in our minds, things differ, right? There's, there's levels of, of wrong to a degree where you say, okay, that's not, you know, don't do that. That was wrong. Don't do it again. And there are other levels where it's very serious, 
and you make sure they know it's very serious. You know, when, when God doesn't look at us and go, well, and I said it this morning, oh, well, they're human, so it's okay. No, God hates sin. God passionately hates sin. We overlook things. We go, it's not that big of a deal. It's not as bad as this, or as bad as this, or as bad as this. And we overlook it. God doesn't overlook our sin. God never one time goes, eh, it's not that big of a deal. God hates sin. And at the point where it comes down to it, where they are here in, in Jeremiah 25, God is saying, you have provoked me to anger. I have been patient, I have been long-suffering, I have been loving, I have been kind, but I have also told you this is wrong, and if you don't fix it, then there's going to be major problems. That anger stirred, but not only with his children, he still loves his children enough to be angry at any person, even doing God's bidding that goes against God's people. That's why when, and again, we in America are still incredibly blessed. But that's why when people talk about, well, before long you won't be able to preach in a church building openly. Or you won't be able to preach on certain topics. Or you won't be able to whatever. I honestly don't pay it much attention because I know anything that comes against me because of doing what God wants me to do, God's going to take care of it. Does that mean that that you could get thrown in prison one day? Sure, maybe. But my job is just to do what God wants me to do, to hearken to his voice and let him handle everything else. These people, his people, didn't hearken. And they had multiple, they had 23 years to repent, to hearken. Yet continually they hearken not to the voice of the Lord. Again, I said that the Babylonian captivity didn't have to take place. Why not? Well, because God said if you repent, then all's fine. All's forgiven, so to say. Yet they still chose not to repent. And because they chose not to repent, they paid the consequence of it. And on the good side of things, those who were bad to God's people, they paid the consequence of that as well. So just understand, you have <laughs> one job, just to do right, no matter what. Just do right. Just do what God says. Hearken to his voice, follow what he says, and do it. And let God handle everything else. Because God is able to handle everything else. And God loves you. And God wants what's best for you. So just follow him. Just do right and hearken. In order to hearken, you have to hear. In order to hear, you either have to be somewhere you can hear or read it for yourself. And both is what I would suggest. Uh, consistently being in God's word so that you can hear, so that you can hearken, so that you can obey. God, help us. We're not perfect and we know that. But God, we want to be better. And God, I pray that we would not provoke you to anger, provoke you to wrath, but God, that we would hearken. And when we do wrong, Lord, that we would hearken to your, your call for repentance, your call to get right, your call... For us to get back where we need to be and Lord that we would not drag it out that we would not need major punishment Lord I think of our country and God we know our country is wicked and we've we all agree the, the way to fix our country is for us to do what we're supposed to do and to reach other people God I pray that uh, you would uh, continue to be patient with our country and Lord that you would use us uh, to make that call to repentance 
Lord, that you use us to reach those in our community, that it would spread, and Lord, that our country would not have to be disciplined. I know our country is not Israel. I know our country is not your people. But God, I pray that our, uh, our country would not have to be disciplined for its wickedness, but Lord, that we could be a part of the revival message, Lord, that we see an impact in our country. Help us to do right so that we can help others to do right. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We'll be back Wednesday night at 7 o'clock if you can come. We'd sure love to have you. It's going to be cold this week, so stay warm. Uh, maybe bring a jacket with you to church, and we'll try to keep it relatively warm in here without uh, paying millions of dollars to do it. But uh, uh, feel free to bring a jacket or a blanket or something with you if you, if you get cold while you're here and things like that. But we will see you on Wednesday night, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise and everything else that you're supposed to say with that. Uh, God bless you. Thank you so much for being here today, for your faithfulness, and it's always a joy to see everybody. Let's go ahead and be dismissed. We're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. 1 John chapter 2. Good reminder, if you'd like to sign up for a special, the sign-up is on the back uh, bulletin board. You can sign up, just make sure you let me see the song that you choose, please, and get that approved. Still waiting for Tyler to sign up for his solo. He's not done it yet, even though it clearly states it in the deacon responsibilities, one solo every five years, but... Uh, <laughs> you got time. You got time. <laughs> First John chapter 2, we are going through a uh, series on abandoned principles, principles that um, Christians have abandoned. And uh, we've talked about a few things so far. We've got this week and next week left. And uh, looking forward to next week's. Next week's message is one... I've never preached on the topic before. I've been a pastor for 10 years now, and uh, I've never preached on the topic. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You've got to come back and see. Uh, but uh, um, looking forward to that. Uh, today we're going to look at the topic of holiness, of being holy. Um, we, we live in a society that's trying to tell us to... Um, Basically, if you're happy, then God's fine with it. And we've watched as Christianity has slowly, well, maybe not even slowly, but has merged away from uh, true godliness, holiness, and moved into this, what we read about in the Old Testament with uh, the nation of Israel, of doing religious things that, that we're supposed to do, but also blending it with my own things and kind of doing what makes me happy. And uh, so today I want to, I'm going to go about it a little differently than I've gone about it in the past, and we'll see that here in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse number 3. The Bible says, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. I should say this, I should have said it before I started reading, but the book of 1 John is written to Christians. We'll look at that again in just a moment, but that's important to remember because sometimes we read verses, if you just read one of them and, and not, don't read the whole context of the passage, you can start to think, well, wait a minute, does the verse 3 mean 
that if I disobey God that I am not a Christian? No, that's not what that means, and we'll talk about kind of the whole concept of this in, in just a moment. But he says there that if we know Him, uh, we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Verse 4, He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth His word in Him verily is the love of God, perfected, completed, satisfied, fulfilled, uh, it says there, continuing, Hereby know, know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought, also, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. How did Christ walk? He walked in holiness. And so this morning we're going to look at this concept of holiness and why we should be holy, why we should be righteous, why we should be godly, why we should live a life the way that Christ lived his life. That we ought to walk as he walked. Lord, I pray for your help this morning. I know that none of us claim to be perfect. I know that none of us uh, claim to be sin-free. But Lord, I also would assume that none of us would claim to be holy. And God, today I pray that as we look at these verses that you've given, Lord, that we will learn of the importance of of walking as you walked. Lord, that we would learn and be challenged by the thoughts that are in these verses. And God, that we would truly make the decision to grow closer to you and to be exactly what you want us to be. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I already talked about it. Uh, But this idea that a Christian can kind of live the way that they lived before they were saved or the way that the world lives and be in in good standing with God is, is false. It is not true. It is impossible to walk in my own desires and please the Lord. When we look at the idea of holiness, the idea of being... Uh, um, fully surrendered to what God desires for me. This idea of walking a surrendered and committed life to Jesus Christ. And we see that again there is so much in it. It's not new to our society because it's written here in the Scripture. We see it throughout the Old Testament. And we see it here in 1 John as well because he's talking to a group of Christians and he brings up this topic that we do know that we know Him, Jesus, if we keep His commandments. And if I say that I know Him, and I keep, or I, if, uh, yeah, if I say that I know Him and I don't keep His commandments, then I'm a liar and the truth is not in me. From the earliest of ages, kids call people liars. They, they pick up on it pretty quick. I remember Camden used to say, liar, you're a liar. Um, he didn't say it to me, he said to his mom. But uh, nonetheless... <laughs> you know, kids, they catch on pretty quick. Wait, you told me one thing, that's not true, you're a liar. And because we say it from such an early age, it kind of loses its depth when you call someone a liar. Um, because you say it about goofy things, right? Um, and things like that. But when God talks about lying and liars, it is always very sincere and very serious in God's eyes. And here we see this this phrase, this verse given to us. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, 
and the truth is not in him. I believe, and, and I'm willing to have this conversation with anyone, here in talking about the word no, the Bible is referring really to more of the fellowship that we have with God, not the salvation that we have through God. So it's the idea of, I, if you say that I know God, that I am in fellowship with God, that there is nothing between me and God, and you keep not His commandments, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Because you do not have fellowship with God if you're in sin. You do not have fellowship with God if you're not keeping His commandments because the fellowship is broken. Not the relationship, not the fact that Jesus Christ saved me, not the fact that I'm His child. That doesn't change, but the fellowship changes because of the things that hinder the fellowship, the sin within my life. And so he says here, that if you say that you know him, that you're in fellowship with him, that you're uh, uh, a perfect relationship with Christ, and you keep not his commandments, you're a liar, the truth is not in you. But he says in verse 5, Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. And then verse 6 is really the, the key verse today. He that saith, he abideth in him Ought. That word is important. Again, this is being written to Christians. And so it doesn't say that the Christian does walk as Christ walked. He says the Christian ought to walk as Christ walks. This and many other verses should take away the mindset that says, well, if I sin, then I no longer have my salvation. I've lost it. Or if I sin, then obviously I've never been saved. Because listen, we're going to sin. <laughs> we're, we're going to. It's not an excuse. All right. I've said this many a times. God doesn't go, oh, well, you're human, so it's okay. No, God still is not okay with your sin. But it doesn't change the fact that me, being human, I'm going to sin. But the Bible does say that I, as someone who claims to know Christ, as someone who claims to be uh, God's child, if I abide in Christ, I ought to walk as Christ walked. And I believe that's the layman's definition for holiness, walking as Christ walked. Because God is holy. And God on this earth, Jesus Christ, was holy even so, being a man, a human on this earth. And so if I walk as Christ walked, then I can be holy. So number one, the reason why I should be holy, number one is because God is holy. The reason why I should be holy is because God is holy. We say, and I believe it, I've said it many times, and I think you agree with me, Christ and God, they are one, are our example. If Christ did it, I should do it. The, I can follow Christ. He's given me an example, and I should walk as He walks, and so therefore, if I'm going to be holy, I should be holy because God is holy. I'm following His example. I'm walking as He walked. Turn back a couple pages to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1 and look in verse number, uh, starting in verse number 15. But as he which hath called you is holy. Who is that? That's God. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, of lifestyle. Because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, 
who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And it goes on. But this idea and this concept, and it was back in Leviticus, I believe, where it was first said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. As, as your Father is holy, as Him who called you is holy, so be ye holy. And the Bible says in verse 15, In all manner of conversation, in all areas of life, be holy. Don't just be holy on Sundays. Don't just be holy for an hour on Wednesday. Don't just be holy for the first hour of your day. Don't just be holy uh, when you're around family. Don't be just holy when you're around co-workers. Be holy in all manner of conversation, every area of your life, meaning what you do, meaning what you say, meaning even what you think. Be ye holy, for I am holy. You see, I ought to be holy because God truly is holy. Look at the next chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. The Bible says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Hey, doesn't that sound familiar to 1 John chapter 2 that we read? Christ, leaving us an example in the way that he suffered, in the way that he lived, in the way that he spoke, in the way that he acted, in the way that he thought, leaving us an example so that we can follow in his steps. Do you ever have a kid you used to hang out with as a kid and your mom or your dad said, I don't want you hanging around that person anymore. They're a bad example. Were you the bad example that other kids' parents said? Don't, don't, don't hang around with that kid. The older you get, the more you, you begin to realize for yourself, if I hang around with this person, it's probably going to end up bad for me. I knew people that were good at getting other people in trouble. They would dare kids, I dare you to do this. They would never do it themselves because they knew it was stupid. <laughs> so they would, they would get other people to do it for them. I sat down with teenagers and said, you really need to stop hanging out with this person. It's not good for you. You see, Christ, though, is someone that we can follow every single step of the way. Because he's holy, because he's perfect, because he's sinless. The Bible talks about being perfect, and, and again, understanding that we are not going to be perfect. I think we should strive to be, by the way. I don't think just because we know we're not going to perfect means that we should just give up on it. We ought to strive to be perfect, to be complete, to be, to be sin. Uh, sinless from here moving forward to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. And if God is my example, if God is, has given me an example that I can follow, then I should strive to be holy because God is holy. Number two, I should strive to be holy because the world needs to see holiness. Turn over to James. It's back, back a couple more pages. James chapter number 2. I need to be holy because the world needs to see holiness. Would it be a surprise to you this morning if I said the world is wicked? No, that wouldn't be a surprise. We know that. God has placed us on this earth and He's given us a mission, a commission, 
to go into all the world and reach the gospel, share the gospel to every creature. And he's done that, and he's told us how to do that, right? In Matthew, he says, Lo, I'll go with you. I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the earth. I have power, and I'll go with you. He's talked about it in different verses by word and deed. Look in James chapter 2, starting in verse number 17. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God that doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Just to make sure I'm clear, I think we're all on the same page here. Works cannot save you. The Bible is very clear, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, very clear. Works have nothing to do with your salvation. But the Bible tells us here in James chapter 2 that without works, my faith is dead. Without uh, uh, doing things on the outward so that people can see it, my faith dies with me. It doesn't get to anyone else. My actions, my, uh, my works, have a major part in the world seeing my faith. Now, if my works are not holy, do you think people are going to see my faith? They are, as a matter of fact. They're just going to see it for what it shouldn't be. But by my holy actions, my righteous actions, my godly actions, by those things, people see my faith and what God has done in my life and therefore can be shared with other people. He says in verse 18, Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'm going to show you my faith by my works, by the things that I do, by my actions. The problem is, is when we go out and our actions are not holy. You've heard the stories of people saying, well, I don't want anything to do with that God, if that's what it's going to be like. Listen, and that's not even um, mean actions necessarily. There are religious people, and people look at that and go, I don't want anything to do with that. There's piousness, there's pride, there's judgmental, there's those kinds of things. Then you, on the other side, you see someone who's a hypocrite which either one, I guess, is, but a hypocrite. And you see them, and they're saying, they're laughing, and they're talking about things they shouldn't talk about, and they're getting involved in things they shouldn't get involved in. And then, then they try to share their faith with someone. They go, but you're no different than me. And some people say, well, you've got to be like them to win them. The Bible says you have to be different than them <laughs> to win them because the things of God and the things of the world are at enmity one with another. My holy actions, being holy, walking as Christ walked, I need to be holy because the world needs to see it. Go back a couple more pages, Hebrews chapter 12. Just two pages back in my Bible, but just back a couple pages, Hebrews chapter 12. Look in verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Well, I've got to go sit at the bar and drink with them so that they can see that I'm, I love them and I care about them. Well, that's not holy. Well, I've got to go do this so that they think that I'm cool and they'll listen to me. 
Well, does God say that what, that action is fine and good and holy? If not, then don't do it. The term popular within pastors these days is the term relevant. I have to be relevant. The church has to be relevant so that the world will come in, so we can get more people to come in. You know, the Bible does not command for the wicked world to come into the church. The Bible commands that the church go out and bring them in. It's not my job to be relevant to the world. As a matter of fact, it is my job to be relevant to Jesus Christ. And if I am relevant to Jesus Christ, then he will lead me to the people that I'm supposed to bring in. Now, I still have to take those opportunities. A guy could put someone right in front of my face and say, go talk to them, and I go, eh, I'm busy. But you see, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 14, that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. The Bible calls us a peculiar people. And I've seen people literally take that into being peculiar and weird and odd. And, and hey, it works for some. Um, but God says you are a set-apart group of people. You are different. I have, I have placed you here for a purpose. A peculiar people, different than others. You ought to be different. How? You ought to be holy. There are good people in this world that are not Christians. They're kind, they're loving, they're giving, all of those sorts of things. But that doesn't lead people to Christ. It's my job as a Christian to be holy. Why? Because God is holy and he's my example. Why? Because the world needs to see it because without holiness they will not see God in me. Think of churches who have a bad reputation. They'd, someone in the church had done something, or the church as a whole had bickered, or whatever it was. And when people hear of that church, it's less likely in a, in a large town, but in a small towns especially, they hear about these things going on in the church, and it just turns them all that. I'm not going to go to that church. And the reason why is because the church was not holy. And by the church, I mean the people. The people were not holy. Their actions were not holy. Their attitudes were not holy. And because of that, People say, I don't want anything to do with that. In this area of the country and, and similar regions in the south, there are churches everywhere. And a lot of times what you'll find is people who have been a part of this church for so many years, and then they left, and now they're a part of this church for so many years, and then they left, and then they're part of this church for so many years, and they're kind of just hopping churches every four, five, ten years, whatever it is, because they find out something eventually they don't like about it, and they'll just leave and, and go on their separate way. And then you've got a bunch of little churches with a bunch of people who know each other because they've all been in church together at some point in time over the course of the last decade, and they're just kind of jumping around. And, and the reason why that is is because there was no commitment. The word holiness has the idea of surrendered commitment to God. And listen, I'm not saying if you leave a church that you're not committed to God. There are good reasons to leave a church. None were this one, but anyways, uh, good reasons to leave a church. But what happens is, is Christians kind of find someone that they are friends with or something that they liked, and then when change happens, all of a sudden they're going, well, that person left, and I don't, I don't know, 
I don't, I've never really made friends with anybody else. And a lot of times, that's a two-way street because they haven't went out and tried to make more friends and because other people didn't, weren't friendly. And sometimes it's a one-sided, whatever. The point is this. They weren't ever committed to doing what God wanted them to do within that church. They were just there for, for a wrong motive. Not necessarily an evil motive, but a wrong motive. You know, when, we, um, when I was in second grade, I think, um, uh, the church that we went to, uh, the pastor had left and a new pastor had come in and there were some things with the new pastor that my parents didn't agree with and we left that church and we were looking for another church. As we were looking for another church, one of the things we were looking for, my parents were looking for, was a kids' ministry. Did they have something for their children who were at that time second and third grade? And that wasn't the only reason we went to the church that we went to. It was a reason. It was a small church at the time running, I don't know, 40, 50 people. And, uh, but they had a kids' program. They had Awanas, and, and, uh, and I still, it's a, I'll tell you the story another day. It was a crazy first Sunday. But anyways, uh, we're there, and, and we ended up sticking with that church. You know what? My parents got involved. My parents got us involved. And we were working in the kids' ministries when we were old enough to do so. My dad was a deacon and a trustee at different times. My mom played the piano and the organ and sang in the choir and different things like that. And there was this, this it wasn't just we're going to church because they have a kid's ministry. It was we're going to a church that we prayed about, first of all, and God wants us here. And there's areas that we can get involved and we can commit to. Once you're committed to the place that God has placed you into, then you can be holy. Wherever that is, not just church, work, uh, the home, anywhere. Once you are committed to knowing, this is where God wants me, and this is where I'm going to be, now I can serve God fully, fully surrendered and committed to what God has for me. And that's where we have to get to, and we have to be holy, because if we aren't holy, the world cannot see Christ. Sometimes we say, well, I have Christian liberty, a dangerous word, it's true, it's, it's biblical, but I have Christian liberty... So leave me alone. I can do what I want. Don't let your liberty um, keep others from coming to Jesus. We can, we've talked about this a lot. We can have differences, and we do have differences. We can have differences and still be holy where God has placed us. But if we get this mindset of liberty and I have the freedom to do what I want and all these kinds of things and that so-called liberty is keeping us from reaching people then that liberty is keeping us from being holy what it ends up being is just selfishness and not actually liberty it is a, a, a choice to please myself and not please God we talked about in different terms liberty last week when we looked at Romans 14 don't let your, your personal liberty keep you from reaching the people that God wants you to reach. Be holy. Be committed. Be surrendered. Be biblical. We need to be holy. Why? Because God is holy, number two, because the world needs to see it. Number three, because we are weak. You can word this different ways. Because I can't be holy, I need to be holy. That's really what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> because I'm weak. I need to be holy. Look in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. 
We're going to read several verses here, starting in verse 16. The Bible says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Hey, side note, you have a problem with a sin? You have a sin that, that you can't get victory over, that you're like, you know, I know I shouldn't do this. I know God doesn't want me to do this, yet I'm still doing it. I need to stop. I know I need to stop. Well, the Bible says here, <laughs> sounds easier than it is, but it says here uh, in verse number 16, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, walking as he walked. Verse 17, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And there are, uh, these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. So you understand, when you're saved, you still have the old man, the flesh. It's still here. It doesn't go away. But then we are given the spirit by God. These two things, they don't, they don't mesh, right? They're different. The spirit and the flesh. And so he says there in 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. They're contrary. They don't go together. Verse 18, but if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? These are the flesh, okay? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's your flesh for you. There's a lot of sensual sins. There's a lot of emotional sins. There's a lot of um, uh, action sins, things that you do physically. Then he says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have, excuse me, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So here the Bible gives us the, uh, the, the, if I can use the words, fruits of the flesh, what happens through the flesh. Then it gives us the fruits of the Spirit, what happens when we're walking in the Spirit, the result of it. And he says that if we've, uh, those that are Christ, they've crucified the flesh, killing it with the affections and lusts. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit as Christ walked. And sometimes we read through these lists and we begin going, okay, I need to be meeker, I need to be nicer, I need to be patient, more patient, I need to be more peaceful, I need to be more good, I need to have more faith, and, 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 and in doing so, I will produce fruits of the Spirit. But guess what? You're not the one that produces the fruit. God is. Being holy has little to do with your actions and much to do with your surrendering to God. It's not about me doing, doing, doing. It's about me saying, God, I am yours, and I will do whatever you ask me to do. That's how I become holy. You think, well, if I go to church Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, and Wednesday night, then I'm holy? No. <laughs> if I read my Bible every day, am I holy? No, not necessarily. Holiness is not about the actions that I commit. It's about the attitude 
that I have towards God. And if I say, God, I am yours, I surrender it to you. God, I am committed to do what you want me to do. Then I can be holy. 1 John 2, 6 that we already read says, He that abideth in me ought to walk as he walked. It starts with the abiding in Christ. Being in Christ. Following Christ. John 15.10 says, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. You see, we have to get away from the mindset of action, action, action and get back to the mindset of, God, you are holy, therefore I am surrendering to you my life, my actions, my words, my thoughts. God, I'm committing them to you. Lord, now help me to be holy. As young children, we are taught, read your Bible and pray every day. We are taught, share the gospel with people. We are taught, give in the offering. We are taught all these things. And those things are important, and I'm not saying we shouldn't teach those things. But I think we get caught up in the action of religion that we truly fail to give our heart to Jesus Christ. When we are saved, it's, the, uh, it's that moment that God convicts our heart and says, you are a sinner, you are lost as can be, you deserve hell. And he tells us, even though you deserve hell, even though you are wicked, even though you're a slime ball, that's in the Greek, he says, I love you. I sent my son Jesus for you. For by grace are you saved through faith. And when I place my faith in the saving grace of Jesus Christ, I'm saved. And although I believe repentance, it gets tricky in the terminology, repentance is important, it's necessary. If I say, God, I want to be saved, but I'm not going to change my life, God's not going to say, oh, it's okay. It's not how it works. And so when we get saved, we come to this point, this realization of God, without you, I, I'm nothing. God, without you, I'm going to go to hell. God, without you... I'm going to keep living this way. Yet the longer that we've been saved, it seems like the more we get in, caught up in the action of religion as opposed to the heart of God. All of us would agree we're supposed to be holy. I think all of us would say we want to be holy. Well, instead of having a checklist of ways to be holy... Just walk as Christ walked. And that starts by being fully committed to Jesus, fully committed to God. Saying, God, here's my heart. Because if my heart doesn't change, my actions aren't going to change. It might change for a little bit, but eventually I'm just going to revert right back to where I was. It all starts here. In order to walk as he walked, I have to be surrendered as he was surrendered. And Jesus Christ was obedient even to the death of the cross, the Bible says. That's, that's committed. How committed are you to God? 
Because if you're not committed to God, and listen, this isn't a one-time thing. This isn't a thing where one time you okay, God, I'm committed to you, and then you're good to go for the rest of your life. This is a daily commitment. This is a, honestly a minute-by-minute commitment. God, I am committed to you. Lord, I am surrendering to you everything that I have. It's yours. Because I am weak, because I am incapable of being holy, I need to be holy. Holiness starts with being committed to God. It's the only way it's going to happen. The only way it's going to happen is through His help. Why should we be holy? Because God is holy. Because the world needs to see it and because I am weak. Today, let's be holy. Let's start simply with the necessary commitment. God, to you, I surrender. My life, my heart, my actions, my words, my thoughts. God, they're yours. Now help me to be holy. Lord, I pray for your help this morning as we ended with the note that I can't be holy. I'm too weak. I'm incapable. But God, we know that with your help, by your strength, God, we can see the fruits of the Spirit as we're walking in the Spirit. Lord, we can see the fruits of of your holiness through us. God, I pray that you would help us to be holy as you are holy. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to walk as you walked. Lord, today I pray that you'd help us to commit to you the things that we need to commit to you. Lord, I pray as the first step of that commitment is becoming your child. It's accepting your gift of salvation. And God, I pray if there's someone in here today that is not saved, that today they would give to you their life and accept you as Savior. And God, I pray for all those that have already accepted you, Lord. I pray that we would be committed or recommitted, fully surrendered to you, so that we can be what you want us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to stand. The piano is going to play. Are you committed to God? Are you surrendered to God? Have you given your all to God? That's the first step. This morning, would you just, if God spoke to you about an area in your life, would you just open up to Him? Just turn it all over to Him. Just say, God, it's yours. I want to be holy, God, but I can't do it without you. God, I'm giving it to you so that you can help me. If you're here this morning and, and you say, you know what, Pastor, I, I've, I've never been saved. I've never committed my faith to God to accept His gift of salvation. And I'd like to do that. You can come up to the front. I'll turn the microphone off. You can come up to the front. And then we'll get someone to show you from the Bible how you can know for certain that you're saved. You can talk to me after the service. But don't wait. Take care of it today. If you are saved, commit, recommit, surrender, resurrender, whatever it is to God. Your heart, your life, because the world will not see Jesus without holiness.
Lord, today I give to you again this church, that this church would be holy. And God, we commit everything that we do as a church, as a group, as a unit. Lord, we give it to you. And we ask for your power, for your strength, Lord, for your help. And Lord, I pray for each of us as we deal individually with the things you've spoken to us about today. God, we just need your help, and we're asking for it today. Give us a good rest of our afternoon, Lord. We pray that you'd bring us back safely together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be dismissed for the afternoon. If you can be back at 1, we'd sure love to have you for the 1 o'clock service. Uh, drive safe uh, as you leave. And uh, if you go sliding off into the ditch, just give us a call. And uh, our deacon who hasn't signed up for the solo will come pull you out. But uh, no, I'm, somebody will be glad to help, I know. Uh, Lord bless you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we'll see you again. Lord bless you. Let's be dismissed. Praise the Lord.